from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The first job I had actually was fascinating. It was the embassy book buyer, and I went all around Moscow and then later throughout the Soviet Union for a year buying books that our intelligence agencies wanted in the United States. Ambassador Melvin Levitsky, a retired State Department Foreign Service officer and current professor at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He had a front row seat to history in the USSR, and he's taken that knowledge and translated it into something very valuable and insightful as the U.S. again faces a threat very similar to that of the USSR. They locked up dissidents. They, uh, you know, you look back to the Soviet period uh, before World War II, a lot of people died in camps. Uh, Stalin basically ma- uh, massacred uh, uh, 20 million in, uh, in Ukraine or so uh, through a kind of starvation campaign when they were collectivizing. You'll take a look back at that and what the U.S. and the West needs to do to extricate itself from the difficult situation it's facing with Russia. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Retired Ambassador Melvin Levitsky is Professor of International Policy and Practice and Senior Fellow at the International Policy Center at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. He served, among other posts, as the U.S. Ambassador to Bulgaria from 1984 to 1987, and as the political officer at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow from 1972 to 75. During those years, he curated an astounding amount of intelligence about Soviet government oppression corruption, and other activities. Curiously, as the Putin regime has been implicated in a blatant attempt to interfere in the 2016 presidential election and again in the 2018 midterms, Levitsky's historical knowledge provides a clever and perceptive blueprint of how to confront Russia in a new Cold War. We spoke to him in his office on the campus of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, on December 11th, 2018. Ambassador, thank you for doing this, first of all. I know that you spent a significant amount of time during your diplomatic career working on matters that related to the Soviet Union and then later to Russia. Mm-hmm. 
And I know you spent some time in Russia. Uh, I think it was back in the 70s. Um, and I, 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 I would like, if you would, to just give us a quick primer on what you did then. And um, my next question is going to lead into today, what the okay. issue that we have with Russia today. But first, give us a sense of what you were doing uh, in Russia for the U.S. government back in the 70s. Well, my concentration was in basically on internal matters. And our, the political section uh, that I worked in uh, was divided into external and internal. That is, looking at the foreign policy issues, looking at the internal issues. I always thought, the, in fact, the key to understanding how their foreign policy interests were uh, became the, the center of uh, you know, their international policy was looking at the internal dynamics as well. So the first job I had actually was fascinating. It was the embassy book buyer, and I went all around Moscow and then later throughout the Soviet Union for a year buying books that our intelligence agencies wanted in the United States. I didn't work as an intelligence officer, but I had a list of the kinds of things they wanted, and I picked up these books. There were about 20 agencies, some intelligence, some not, and some like the Library of Congress that wanted a copy of everything. And as you did that, you got to know what was going on in Russia, what people thought, because you could sit with them. And uh, sometimes it, at, um, you know, at, at a restaurant or something like that. And then I worked in the political section on basically on ter- internal matters, meaning human rights, uh, family reunification, uh, internal dissidents and, fer- and ferment. And then the next three years, I went back to the State Department and I was direct, I was the um, in charge, officer in charge of U.S. Soviet bilateral relations, which were some of the same issues that I dealt with in Moscow. So I want to go back to that for a little bit more detail in just a second. Mm-hmm. But first, I'd like to ask you against the backdrop of what you have seen come out of Russia under Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin now, give me your sense of how things have changed since you were there uh, in person then. What we thought was over with the, the collapse of the Soviet Union appears not to be, but I'd like your thoughts on how you compare what's going on to Russia, in Russia now with what you saw when you were there big changes. When you were in the Soviet Union, a Russian citizen could not leave the country without an exit visa and without a, without a government-sanctioned passport. And very few people that weren't going on official missions or sometimes on trade union-sponsored trips, which were controlled by the government, could get out of Russia. So a big thing now is that citizens can actually travel, or at least for the most part can travel. There is still a repressive side, as there was during the Soviet period, but the tools of repression are much more subtle now. Uh, court cases, accusations of, uh, uh, you know, fraud or accusations of uh, money laundering, things like this, can be used against the opponents of the Putin regime, I would call it. Um, but uh, there is a relatively open press. You can read criticism of the government now, carefully constructed in this case, because they can't go too far. They know what the framework is. Um, so there is some openness, uh, a lot more openness. And, of course, the government doesn't control all business as it did 
It was a command economy, as as Lenin said, commanding from the heights. Um, so there is a certain amount of free enterprise. Um, and there's also some dis- dissatisfaction expressed. Some people would like to go back to the old times, uh, particularly the older people, when they had free education, free free housing, and weren't paid very much. But um, in many cases, we're able to live uh, a kind of close to a middle class life uh, based on basically government subsidies. So I would say, uh, in general, the country is uh, more open. It's a kind of guided open system that some people say guided democracy or managed democracy. Uh, the elections are open but pretty much controlled by the government because they have so much control over over the press and uh, and over the leg- the legislation of the Duma in particular. Mm-hmm. So it's a different kind of setup. It's a different way of controlling and they don't have as complete control as the Soviet as during the Soviet period, but they still have considerable influence and control over things that are happening in Russia now. Election night, twenty sixteen. A politician in Russia by the name of Vladimir Zirinovsky, whom I'm sure you are yes. familiar with, and you may know this guy. I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. Sure, he had a champagne party that night celebrating the win by President Donald Trump Mm -hmm. that night. But in the process, he said something very curious. He said, um, this is something that we've been trying to achieve for 70 years. And a lot of people that I've spoken to in the intelligence community took that to mean they were, excuse me, he was referring to Uh, an attempt by the Russian government dating back to the days of the Soviets to try to manipulate successfully an election in the U.S. and get a candidate that or someone uh, elected that they had a good relationship with or perhaps something even more sinister. It's not really clear what he meant, but what is clear is that he was celebrating a victory that he said they'd been working for for 70 years. What do you make of that? It's a Pyrrhic victory, for one thing, because because President Trump cannot control the relationship with the Soviet Union in the way they may, may have thought. I don't know how much they, they, how much whether they had anything on the president and whether that influenced him or not. Zhirinovsky, I wouldn't take his <laughs> I wouldn't take his advice too much. I don't think he's clued in. But I do think that they certainly, I think the evidence shows they tried to influence the election toward Trump. They thought Trump would be a much better president than Hillary, than Hillary Clinton was. They didn't like Hillary Clinton. And we know that they, um, they worked with WikiLeaks. We know how that they worked... It looks like we don't have the full picture yet. It looks like they worked with some on the campaign. What mm-hmm. the president's direct involvement was, and these stories about being compromised, I would not. I I would take with a grain of salt at this point. But there's no doubt that the Russians were happy with the result, and that they had a, an influence over the result. Did they have a controlling influence? That's mm-hmm. that's a little bit hard to say. But they certainly. Uh, and what they did in terms of putting out false information and uh, um, getting these, these uh, the Clinton emails released, uh, all of that certainly had a Russian hand in it. So, but I, I, I wrote an, an editorial for the local press here, the Detroit News, uh, 
when this happened about the bromance, the so-called bromance. And I said it's going to end because the Congress and particularly the Democrats and a number of Republicans don't trust the Russians at all. And they don't like what Putin has done. And Putin certainly hasn't helped himself by things like in, uh, taking the Ukraine back, um, the Syria policy, uh, all kinds of repression internally of people who are trying to to uh, mount an opposition campaign legitimately under uh, the rules of their own constitution. So it's, um, you know, they were happy. I don't think they're as happy now as they were then. Ambassador Melvin Levitsky recalling his days as a foreign service officer in the USSR and examining the predicament that modern Russia is in under the Putin regime and the relationship between Russia and the U.S. And when we come back, has Russia become more brutal than the Soviet Union. They locked up dissidents. They, uh, you know, you look back to the Soviet period uh, before World War II, a lot of people died in camps. Uh, Stalin basically ma uh, massacred uh, uh, 20 million in, uh, in Ukraine or so uh, through a kind of starvation campaign when they were collectivizing. That's when we come back on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability, enabling faster, more assured decisions. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. On this program, we've been talking with Ambassador Melvin Novitsky about his days in the USSR and Russia and after. One of the most interesting things about this conversation is the time he spent touring Russia, collecting reading materials and learning what people thought about their government during the days of the USSR. And he's taken that information and, and analyzed it and has given us a picture of what's going on now in Russia comparative to what was happening before and what we can expect perhaps in the future. Some of that's coming up as we continue our conversation. But first, I wanted to know who really runs Russia. Ambassador, there are those that say Russia has evolved into a mafia state. Um, for years, people have talked about the fact that they believe um, the the country is run by a very powerful um, intelligence community, um, uh, the mafia, and Vladimir Putin. And those are, it's a three-headed, shall we say, governing process, if you could call it governing. It's certainly a regime, as you mentioned it earlier. Um, but there are those that believe that Russia is indeed a mafia state now and not uh, a legitimate uh, the Kremlin is not a legitimate governing body anymore. Well, I would, I probably wouldn't go that far. But remember, my experience and what I compare it with is the, the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. They locked up dissidents. They, uh, you know, you look back to the Soviet period uh, before World War II. A lot of people died in camps. Uh, Stalin basically ma uh, massacred uh, uh, twenty million in uh, in Ukraine or so. Uh, through a kind of starvation campaign when they were collectivizing. So, you know, if I use that mark even into the Brezhnev period, which was more gray co communism, 
uh, when they, they threw out Solzhenitsyn. They remember uh, Sakharov, who was a great human rights campaigner, and the, actually one of the, one of the um, scientists on their atomic bomb project uh, was off, um, exiled in Gorky, couldn't get out. Um, I dealt with a lot of uh, people who were on the, during that time, who were kind of in the marginal communities, artists and writers and others that couldn't get published, couldn't put their stuff out. So I, my comparison is, it's better now. Mm. I don't know whether I'd call it a mafia state. For a while, the Russian mafia was very strong, and it's all over the place. I mean, we've got it here in the United States. You remember Brighton Beach? We had some issues there. Um, there's a, there was a little mafia in Israel. Israel's had some problems with um, the, the sort of Ru Russian, the in international Russian mafia. There are a lot of Russians around. For a while, they were actually hired out as contract killers, some of those that would come out. And we're being hired by the real mafia in Italy and other places, so I, uh, I'm not putting a, I'm not trying to put a, a bright stamp on the Russian regime. You're putting but, it in context. But if, but if I if I put it in context, I'd say, well, things have evolved better. I thought, I was hopeful that it would that it would evolve into a more representative, um, kind of government. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Yeltsin wanted to do it, but frankly. He um, and maybe we mistook this. We we got too close to him, and he was drunk a lot of the time, for one thing, and kind of made a fool of himself in front of the Russian public, which may have resulted, at least partially resulted, in their looking toward a stronger man like Putin. Remember, they had Putin and Medvedev who were switching jobs every every four years or so, but Putin really became the the power there. Is there an elite that runs things? Absolutely, I think. There's no doubt about it. In the, in, in the um, uh, business community, uh, in the intelligence community, that's where Putin has his, you know, his, his, or had, had his start. So um, it's, a, uh, it's a kind of mixture of things uh, with a strong authoritarian bent. Uh, with a lot of Russians having nostalgia for the old period when Russia was such a big force. I mean, look at, I, I turn this around and say Putin uses the uh, make Russia great again kind of <laughs> symbolism. He doesn't say it exactly that way, but that's essentially what it is. Yeah. And so his polling, if you can trust the polling, and I think, you know, sort of within, with a little bit of salt, um, the polling, he polls quite high. Now, is that going to last forever? Will there be an emergence at some point? You know, there are enough trappings of democracy there that could turn into a more representative country, but that would require a change in leadership and a, a change really in the system in the sense of the Duma's role, the legislative part, with some checks and balances. They don't have to be like we have because we, you know, sometimes we have gridlock and some people say, great, we've got gridlock. I mean, we can gridlock President Trump, some people say. But if they had more of a representative, um, uh, move toward a more representative democracy, I mean, there's great uh, human capital in, in Russia. The education system, you know, the, the old joke was, well, first we teach them to read and then we make sure that we control what they read. Mm -hmm. um, same way they used to say... Um, you, you know the workers say you uh, you pretend us to pay you pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Um, some of those things are there and in, and, uh, a, and in, uh, but they need more inf a more informed kind of population, 
and a more informed kind of uh, an open uh, election uh, process. Um, I always like to be helpful, uh, hopeful, I'm sorry, <laughs> helpful too, but yeah. hopeful. I'm not sure that this is going to happen. I just, I think there are en enough, as I say, trappings there that it could happen, but it would really need to have a really good leader come out who is committed to open an open process. Mm -hmm. And with some leadership that would say, okay, we're, we think we're better off if we open it up, people will, um, you know, the economy will open up, our politics will be more open, and we'll have to suffer an opposition that actually means something. Let's hope that happens. So there have been people who exemplified those very qualities that you were just talking about, like Boris Nemtsov. There is a fellow now by the name of Alexei Navalny. Navalny, yeah, sure. Who uh, is cut from the exact cloth that you talked about. But something else that you talked about earlier in what I think was a very eloquent uh, portrayal of a, the, the main problem in Russia is assassinations. Yeah. And one of the key things that I wanted to ask you about specifically because... A couple years ago, I was in Bulgaria, mm -hmm. and I know that you spent some time there. Oh, yeah. And there was a very famous uh, Russia, a dissident that came from Georgi Makarov. Uh, Markov. Who, Markov, sorry, who was killed in London with the, 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 the umbrella. Right. Uh, but he, along with others, um, after him, and especially within the last three to four years, there have been almost 40 anti-Putin... Uh, Russians or people who have taken a position against the Kremlin in some way who've turned up dead. And some of them who have not. Just some of them who actually are in Putin's orbit or in the, or in the Kremlin orbit as, as a diplomat. I mean, the, their, their own head of the UN dropped dead, I mean, a couple of years ago. There have been so many suspicious deaths uh, as a result of who knows what that I kind of wonder, do you think... Um, well, better question, what needs to be done to get past this problem of everyone that has a problem with Vladimir Putin dying <laughs> to, in order to get to someone who can, rule, who can be a better leader? Well, I can't vouch for every one of those being tied to the Kremlin, uh, but there were too many journalists that have been uh, who were... Who were Opposition journalists. Well, I wouldn't. Say, I would say real journalists who were who found themselves either in trouble or in some in, in, in a number of cases killed. And we have the Nemtsov case, and we have the Skripalny case in in the UK. Um, so I, there certainly are very strong suspicions about a campaign to do this. There may be some rogue operations as well. But in any case, let's let's. Let's think of how you how you how you stop this. Internally, we there's very little we can do to stop it except to expose it, and that's in, that's where our journalism comes in, and where the uh, the so the uh, Russian journalists have some um, barriers to exposing it entirely because they put themselves in danger. But there are a number of very courageous uh, Russian journalists who who have engaged in that. I think, it, it again, it depends on the evolution of the political system. There's not much we can do about if they're going to engage. We could bring it to the U.N., I suppose. We'd have to really 
make a good case to have you know others voting with us in the Security Council and the Russians could veto anything in the Security Council um, I think uh, just continuing to expose this uh, but we can't get into their own uh, you know we can't get into Russia to be able to do anything that would stop them one would hope that they would see some benefit at some point some of their leadership would see a benefit in having a responsible opposition uh, I can't be too hopeful of that in the near in the near future, but maybe over a period of time with some evolution, they would see the advantages of a, a more open system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was in Bulgaria, and they actually tried twice. They actually, it was with a pellet of ricin in the uh, which is made from castor oil, very deadly. Uh, in um, and Georgi Markov, as he was walking on a bridge, and he felt a little sting, and he died eventually. Skripalny died. It's the same kind of thing here. Um, there was one in France where the pellet didn't open, so uh, they they tried it. It was another um, dissident who got out and was broadcasting for Radio Free Europe at the time. Both of them were doing that. Um, they were remember the Bulgarians were also assassin uh, were also accused of of trying to assassinate the Pope mm-hmm. via a guy who had spent some time at a hotel that I used to play tennis at in Bulgaria a long period of time. It was a Pope John Paul. John Paul, that's right. And basically the idea there was that John Paul was, was Polish, Polish Catholic Church, and uh, uh, Solidarnist yeah. uh, were doing things that the Pope basically stood as a symbol for, and so they tried to... That was the idea. Never proven, but... Mm-hmm. You know, very strong suspicion. So th- there's a tradition, you know, go back to the czars. I mean, this is a, uh, in, a in many ways, a reversion to the czars in a, a period of time where if the czars were there now with all these tools that they have and electronic means and everything else, they might be ruling in the same way. Mm-hmm. So this is what I wanted to get to through all of this. And thank you for uh, following me and connecting all of these dots for us. Where we are now is, according to uh, Mike Hayden, the former CIA director... By the way, Mike Hayden used to work for me in Bulgaria. He was my air attaché at the time. I've heard that story about him being an air attaché there. He's somebody I've gotten to know pretty well. Yeah, I know Mike. um, He was great, by the way. Still is. Still is. is. Um, So he has mentioned Russia, under Vladimir Putin, wants to paint a picture of itself as being a resurgent power. But in reality, it's a revanchist power. When you look at all of the issues and the problems that it has with, you know, the aging population, the economies in shambles, it's, I mean, the economy of Italy, the, the economies of New York, Los An- uh, New York, uh, uh, California, and, and, and uh, Texas, I think, are probably bigger than that of Russia. Yeah. And, but, so, in the process of thinking that it can be what it used to be, uh, they've gone about this process of trying to be a bully on the on the global stage. So the question I'd like to ask you is, now, we know all these things about Russia. We, all, we, we also know where the U.S. is as a result of what happened in 2016. Are they trying to take advantage of the disarray and the chaos that's going on in the U.S. to, 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 to make a significant step back towards being that big world power that it used to be, and can they be successful? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I often use this, uh, this image of, if I were the Russian historian for the policy, 
I would do the same thing. Because there are so many instances of our either un being unwilling or unable because of our own democratic system to be able to oppose them, uh, that they would say, hey, there's no pushback. You know, when they did Syria, President Obama made a terrible mistake in uh, backing and backing down um, and saying, well, I have to go to the Congress. And then he got involved with the Russians, which let, let them get their, well, at least help them get their foot in. Um, we haven't done much better. Uh, pre you know, pre President Trump has showed this kind of, uh, well, what's, what's important to him is personal kind of relationships. Uh, I like uh, Kim Jong-un. He likes me. And, you know, where's that good? We look weak in their eyes. And the, they do respect strength. And I don't think we can show too many areas where we're strong. We seem to be afraid to criticize them or go too far, at least from the executive branch now during the Trump administration, on human rights things, on the Spirit-Polney case. We, the president sort of gets forced by the Congress into saying something that uh, seems to be strong about their, their, uh, their actions overseas. Look, Crimea, why did they go to Crimea? Well... You know, they say, well, Khrushchev gave it away in a drunken fit. It always was Russian. On the other hand, they thought they could go in with very little penalty. And we, there, has been, there have been some sanctions. Um, I mean, they're more punished by the price of oil, which is low now, or, and natural gas, than they are by our sanctions. Their economy um, is not very outward-looking except for the energy sector. There's not much. They can sell military weapons to you know, to the Hezbollah or Iran or North Korea or whatever it is. Um, but that's not, uh, that's not sustaining over the long, over the long run. If they were had a better, if they had a better economic system and actually were competitive in world markets in anything but energy. So, um, you know, I think, um, they they're very good at taking it taking advantage of weaknesses and we have to be we have to be much stronger you know ronald reagan opposed the soviet european pipeline mm -hmm. way back mm -hmm. right actually yeah. it's pretty prescient wasn't it yeah. now thinking now about it think yes. of if you think of, and he and he opposed it on the now again it was the soviet union he opposed it on the basis that that would give russia leverage right. over european policy uh, Soviet Union uh, leverage over European policy. Well, Soviet Union is gone, but Russia now has leverage because of oil, and now they're suffering mainly because the price is low. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, that was the fuel that that fueled their economy actually, and it's it's not doing it. So, in a way, we should uh, even those stockholders like myself of some of the of some of the oil companies should, that's got, that have gone down should be hoping that the price of oil stays down because it maybe stops them from certain other adventures they'd want to engage in if their economy were stronger. Mm -hmm. So, I think, um, yeah, I think um, uh, we have to we have to stand up more resolutely and. Uh, and we have to stick to what we did. The Obama mistake, I thought, was, was really bad because he drew a red line, and that means something in the Middle East. Red lines are tied into Middle East policy. Don't cross this line or. And then he went back on it. And when they saw that, it gave them an indication, even in Ukraine, that they could go farther, I think, that we would not, we didn't have the resolve to, to do anything about it. 
Now, I don't want to blame President Obama, you know, for the way the way Russia is now. But it was one more indication on their part that this democratic system we have is is not like theirs, where they where the, the executive can just make a decision and stick with it. Mm-hmm. They don't have to worry about their legislature. I mean, the Duma will do whatever. I mean, the Duma did pass things afterwards on Ukraine and and on mm-hmm. uh, and on uh, on on uh, Eastern Ukraine and on Crimea. So. I mean, in a way, the fight is, if, if we're talking about a competition, it's not quite even. We're so much better economically and culturally and politically than they are. On the military side, when it comes to decision-making on this, what I would say, the national, this national security side, they're not as strong, but they can make resolute, strong decisions, and they don't have, I mean, they've, they've, forgotten, about, they've forgotten about Afghanistan in a way that we haven't forgotten about Vietnam and Mm-hmm. Other and Iraq and other issues. That is a fascinating uh, reveal for me and for for our listeners uh, about uh, the connections between the time you spent in Russia and where we are right. now. One final thing on that, and then I have one sure. other quick topic I'd like to get into for maybe okay. two or three minutes. I would like to know what the U.S. does now, because we know now that. Uh, Russia did try to meddle in the or interfere in the 2018 midterms as well, which means they're not giving up. I was told once that uh, we have to look at the Kremlin and all of the adversarial figures in Russia and remember that they are a nation of chess players, always thinking moves, dozens of moves ahead. And the question I need to ask is, with all of your wisdom on this, What's next for the U.S. when it comes to Russia? Well, it's hard for me to say. I, it's, it's easy for me to say what we should do. It's hard for me to believe that this is something that we w- that these are things that we will do, given this particular administration. Because it's unfortunately, and I don't want to be partisan in this. I t- frankly tended to vote more Republican than Democrat in the past. Now I'm I call myself NP, no party. Mm-hmm. Um, so. What I think is when they when the when the Russians see a chaotic situation with the president saying one thing in his tweets, or even in the public and in, in the public arena, and then his cabinet having to go back and sort of mop up after these things and and making statements that are contradictory, I mean I think the president believes in creating chaos and that's somehow a positive thing for making a deal. Hmm. This is not international relations. This is not the way it works. It's not just like the business world. Mm-hmm. But well, here's what I would do. I would first place do the same thing we did in Crimea, the same thing we did with the Baltic countries. We never recognized their incorporation, forceful incorporation into the Soviet Union. We should not recognize Crimea, and we should put a penalty on those people that are running things there. They w- we should never give them visas. We should find out who uh, is running the... the um, campaign in eastern in eastern Ukraine and in Crimea and stop them from getting visas, put them on the visa we, uh, watch list. Um, we should continue to support. The Europeans actually are with us on sanctions. Uh, generally, they have been softer than we have been, but actually now they're somewhat harder. They just renewed their sanctions. Um, and I think the Congress, now that you have the split Congress, the Congress can put more pressure on the president and make a deal themselves. You want this? 
-hmm. you're going to have to show us more resolve internationally Mm -hmm. because eventually we will have a national security threat, even though Russia, I would not say, is a strong power. They have nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. and they have a strong military. Mm-hmm. And they can finance their military in any way they see fit. And the military is nowhere near as good as ours. But if you think of public opinion having a, having an a, a influence over policy, we're not going to be as easy to commit our military as they are theirs. Mm-hmm. So we have to take that into account. You know, there's a the question of force and then the ability to use it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that we should become warmongers and use the military everywhere. In fact, the military are more peacefully inclined than many of our politicians are. I remember at one point a Secretary of State said to Colin Powell, I won't mention who it was, but you'll figure it out, said, you know, you're always talking about this wonderful military we have. Why can't we use it sometime? (laughs) Because he had all kinds of, you know, we want to have a mission to clearly define with, want to have the public behind it, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm... um, I mean, I love this country, but it's it's a difficult uh, atmosphere to work in. Um, checks and balances are great. Federalism is great. Uh, but it makes things hard to come to a, a decisive decision. They don't have that problem on the other side, on the Russian side. Well, Ambassador Levitsky, thank you very much for this conversation on Russia. Thank you so much for this. Well, I appreciate being on and uh, continue to do good work and come back and see us again. We will. Thank you very much. Ambassador Melvin Levitsky, retired State Department Foreign Service Officer. Coming up in our next episode, one you won't want to miss, a look back at 2018. The true story of a retired U.S. spy. My first assignment abroad was uh, working, if you will, behind the Iron Curtain. North Korea's missiles and their stunning reversal few months ago, he wanted to shoot the missiles and try, try to start a war. Mm-hmm. And now he want to join the Olympic with the South Korea. The safety of U.S. commercial aviation. In my uh, almost six months as the TSA administrator, uh, I've seen um, the threat uh, information. It's, it's almost constant. The 25th anniversary of the World Trade Center bombing. You felt the earth shake, felt the bomb. We didn't know what it was. You couldn't really see out the windows because it was it was a snowy, cold, boggy day. Kremlin assassins in the U.S. Then they came in to shoot me again in the head and the gun jammed. The shooter cleared the weapon. He tried again and the gun jammed again. The most interesting stories of 2018. That's coming up in our next episode. In the meantime, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate you allowing us inside your ear and in your head. And I hope that we're bringing you the kind of programs and the kind of information that you want to know about and hear about. If you have any questions or comments, send me an email at the letter J, the color green. That's one word, J-G-R-E-E-N at WTOP.com. That's J Green at WhiskeyTangoOscarPapa.com. Also, Follow us on Twitter, if you will, at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. That's at T-U-S-A Podcast. That's Tango Uncle Sugar Alpha Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. 
That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.